Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. G'day race fans, welcome to the Castrol Motorsport News Podcast. I'm your host Will Dale and here's what's making headlines this week. For the first time in the Supercars Gen 3 era, Ford has swept a race weekend. Cam Waters and David Reynolds took the wins at the Boost Mobile Gold Coast 500, both in absolute nail biters that we'll dig into during this app. They weren't the only winners on the Gold Coast streets though, Tony Riccadello secured his 12th national sports sedan title after a dramatic re- weekend of races all three of which were swept by Cameron McLeod and a new sports sedan spec Mark Mustang. Meanwhile, Aaron Borg secured back-to-back V8 Super Use titles and Bailey Hall took his maiden race and round wins in Porsche Carrera Cup. Supercars is letting out bits and pieces of the 2024 calendar. We now know it'll start with a Superfest at Mount Panorama in February, as we talked about last week, linking with about this 12-hour to create a 10-day event. While Townsville and Surface Paradise will keep their traditional weekends in July and October, but the big question now is just how many rounds will be on it. It might be another 12-round schedule, and it might just be the bend that slips off with no confirmed deal yet for 2024, so watch this space. Brody Kostecki is off overseas after the Velo Adelaide 500 to squeeze in one more race for 2023. The current Repco Supercars Championship points leader will rejoin NASCAR team Richard Childress Racing for an endurance event at the Circuit of the Americas at the start of December. He'll be driving with Kyle Busch and Austin Dillon, but what they'll be driving is still TBC. RCR does have that ex-Holden Racing Team Car of the Future Commodore at its disposal, though. Calder Park held its first Motorsport Australia-sanctioned race meeting in 15 years on the weekend. Plenty of works have been done to the circuit to bring it back to active duty, and MA signed off last week on its Category B2 licence, which allows it to host up to state championship-level race events again. And Bathurst 1000 winner Richie Stanaway is already getting up to speed with his new squad. He was out at Queensland Raceway on Tuesday, turning his first laps in a Grove Racing Mustang as part of a team ride day. In the co-driver's seat, as always, is Stefan Bartholomeus. Let's get straight into it, Steph, with our Castrol high-spec stars of the week. Who's yours going to? Hello, Will. Well, we've got plenty of supercars topics to talk about on the pod this week, but I'm starting the show by showing some love for a sports sedan. My star is going to the Riccadello family's Chev-powered Alpha GTB. And yes, I do mean the car itself. It didn't have a good run on the Gold Coast, but it did enough for Tony to seal his 12th sports sedan national title. But what's probably a bit less known is that it's actually the car's 13th championship. 
because it also scored one with Brian Smith at the wheel in 1994. And it actually debuted back in 92. It's just such an incredible machine that they've obviously evolved a lot over the years. That's wild. Like doing the story on that sports slash GT run what you brung race back in 92 last week, I didn't realize this was the same car that, that actually took out that race. Yeah, it's, uh, we published some, some photos from, from 92 and 2023 on the Sleuth channels yesterday, and it was just great to see how much affection there is out there for that car. Sure is. Uh, for mine, I'm look, I'm actually going to give my star to Peter Adderton. I mean, I'm, look, I know it's hard to take a couple of steps nowadays without tripping over one of his comments or one of his opinions on the sport, but look, he's absolutely talked the talk with Boost Mobile support of the Gold Coast 500. Like from that boost livery supercar that was in the airport during the lead up, uh, Indy 500 style, I might add, through to the VB Challenge style events and all the other activations. Look, it was mightily impressive. I mean, especially when compared directly alongside the recent Repco Bathurst 1000, which in in my opinion set a really high bar. Yeah, that's a good shout for a star of the week. It's, it's just a great match between a brand and an event and boost do a great job of making sure there's lots to see off track and there was even a massive skateboard half pipe in the facility this year which I've not uh, not seen before and I did have a brief chat with uh, the boost guys on the weekend and one thing they want to do is bring back the stadium super trucks as well so uh, yeah we'll see if they uh, can get that one over the line. Well, let's hope so big fan of the old jumpy trucks and it would be good to see them back down under again. Right, let's talk supercars, and there was no shortage of things to talk about off the back of the Boost Mobile Gold Coast 500. It was a huge weekend for Tickford Racing and for Grove Racing. Cam Waters claimed the Saturday win for Tickford, who'd had an absolutely luckless enduro campaign in recent weeks, while David Reynolds claimed the first win for the Groves and his own first win in five years. And also, that Sunday race win came almost 10 years to the day of his very first supercars win on the Gold Coast back in 2013. Steph, as you said, you were on the ground there all weekend. What was the vibe around the two squads after the wins? Oh, it clearly meant a hell of a lot to to everyone in those race teams. Like the emotions always pretty strong in the garages after such close finishes, and they really were blockbuster grandstand finishes to both races. But yeah, when you look at Tickford and you look at Groves, like it's just a great reward for all the work that's gone in through a really tough year, and in particular Grove Racing, which is a team on the rise, but they just had this such such a strong start to the season and then a big slump through the mid-year and they've pulled themselves out of that now and they're just flying at the moment. And I think, obviously, the David Reynolds win was a great result for them, but the speed of Matt Payne through the weekend and, and Bathurst and, and the band, like he's just putting together a string of results. It's That's an amazing story for them too. I think, um, yeah, they'd be pretty excited about next year with, with Matt Payne and also Richie Stanaway. As you said, he had his first drive for one of their cars today. When you think that that was Matt Payne's second race weekend in a supercar on the Gold Coast streets, the fact that he just, he looked so confident, so assured and didn't look like he was putting too many feet wrong. Uh, it was that was a very, very impressive drive. And you can, you really, we're really starting to see why the Groves had him tabbed as the star of the future so long ago now. Yeah, clearly he's come a long way in uh, in just a couple of years from when he started in Super 2 and he was obviously very, very green and they had to sort of delay his graduation to the main game by a year. But uh, certainly he's, uh, he's making up for any lost time there. So obviously the Fords were granted an aero upgrade package for the weekend and Reynolds said in the presser on Sunday that he wouldn't be sitting there in P1 had it not been for those changes. 
But Steph, was it the error that made the difference? Well, I guess it's hard to know. As you say, Dave certainly said he wouldn't have been sitting there without it and Cam had praised it as part of the win on Saturday as well. But, you know, on Saturday I spoke to Tim Edwards after the race and he was of the opinion that it wouldn't make any difference on a track like that and and he felt that it was a circuit where the drivers make a lot more of the difference and perhaps that was behind it. So who knows what was physics and what was psychology, but it was interesting that the Ford homologation team, DJR, they had an absolute shocker. Like that, they had various things going on, but it certainly didn't rocket them to the front of the field. And there's been a bit of friction between DJR and some of the other Ford teams through the year, especially over the Townsville aero change, where some of the others seem to think DJR made the wrong call with that. And now they've reversed most of that those changes and gone with some elements that the other guys had had wanted originally. That's a worthwhile point. Although we saw the Tickford cars and the Grove cars up the front, it wasn't all the Fords that all of a sudden vaulted forward. I mean, Walkinshaw and Dreddy United also, despite having Chas Mostert in the 10 on both days, um, did struggle for race pace and did struggle for long run tire longevity as the race went on. Yeah, so again, it's it's hard to to know what was what out of all this, but you sort of look at it and go, well... Clearly, it didn't hurt, and it's a shame that um, that they didn't have this from, if not mid-season, then even the start of the season, because what a year we could have had. Absolutely. And look, there's obviously more work and talk on parity to come, because we've still got that raft of transient dyno and wind tunnel testing scheduled for the next few months. Oh, yeah. Parity is still going to be the hottest topic for a while, and there are a lot of Ford teams meeting with each other about engines over the weekend trying to get their site in order ahead of the upcoming transient dyno testing in Melbourne. We know that Ford had wanted an engine upgrade for the Gold Coast, but they'll just have to go through that process now and see what comes out of all that. And then obviously the wind tunnel side of it is a huge talking point as well because there's a real feeling that, okay, Supercars has committed to spending huge money on this, but how do they ensure that they actually make the most of it? And there's a lot of politics in all that too, of course, in terms of who's involved and who does what. But um, yeah, there's there's a lot of key discussions to be had between now and when they actually get to the wind tunnel in December. It's a very valid point because as we all know from across the history of motorsport, just because you've gone into a wind tunnel doesn't mean you've ended up with a good car or a good result. The uh, the other big thing coming into the weekend, of course, was the championship battle between Brody Kostecki and Shane Van Gisbergen. And incredibly, it's status quo. Like Both drivers racked up a second placing and a fifth placing in each of the races, which leaves the championship margin exactly where it started at 131 points. But uh, clawing that back across four races is a very different proposition to doing it over two races. So, Steph, surely the title is Brody's to lose now. Well, to be honest, it felt that way heading into the Gold Coast to a certain extent, but certainly the weekend it was a big step towards the title for Brody. It was interesting, I felt that he was still pretty aggressive, not only in that battle with Dave on Sunday, but also the first lap of the Saturday race. Like We, we talked on the pod last week about how one curb strike in the shootout could mean trouble. And it really, it nearly did there for him. Like he was lucky to get out of that contact with Tim Slade at turn two 
at the start of that race and not only was there no penalty but it actually bent a rim on Brody's car and the team couldn't believe that the tyre stayed up and made it through that whole stint so obviously it did and now he just needs to keep his head in Adelaide basically like even if Shane wins both races Brody can bank an eighth and a ninth and still take the title. Well, that's it. Like, he has his first genuine match point on Saturday. If he can bring his margin up to 150 points over Shane, well, that's it. The title's done. It's it's all him. And as we, if you've cast the clock back 12 months, Shane didn't exactly have the best weekend in Adelaide uh, with the number one on the car. Although he didn't have the pressure of the championship on, there were some odd mistakes and just some decisions that didn't quite go his way and... There's no guarantee to be running at the front in Adelaide as we saw at the Gold Coast where, yeah, Shane was at, at or near the front, but he didn't win either of the races. And on the Sunday when it counted, he just seemed to lack that final edge of pace to actually do anything to move further forward. Yeah, obviously on the Sunday it went the other way and Shane had the curb strike in the shootout and that really put him on the back foot. I think you can't read too much into last year's Adelaide form for Shane because, yeah, I'm not sure the concentration and focus was quite there because he did have the championship wrapped up already. But um, there's there's also the team's championship that uh, both will be looking at. And it certainly felt on the Gold Coast at some points through the weekend that neither team actually wanted to win that thing. Like um, the teammates both had pretty difficult weekends like Will Brown obviously had those gear selection issues in qualifying on Saturday and then the crash in the shootout on the Sunday and and Brock Feeney he he sort of struggled like he did on the Gold Coast last year as well and yeah I was surprised considering how consistently good he's been this year across um, pretty much all circuits that um, yeah he had a bit of a shocker. That that drive from Will Brown straight off the start on Saturday was one of the most impressive things across the entire weekend. He went from the very back of the grid, avoided all the trouble, and was in the top half of the field basically by the first round of pit stops. I mean, that was a very impressive rebound considering the difficulties he's had, as he touched on in qualifying, and then also with the back surgery that he that he had prior to the race weekend. So it wasn't exactly a straightforward lead up to the Gold Coast event for him. No, well, not too much has been straightforward for him basically since he signed that Triple Eight deal mid-year. He was, uh, it wasn't too long ago that he was leading the championship and the wheels fell off of all that pretty quickly. But uh, as you say, like, yeah, he's he's still a good driver and he's got a fast car. And I think that um, going back to Brody, that's really the key that everywhere they've turned up, they've been fast. And so the Gold Coast was somewhere where you can get a curb strike and have to start basically mid-pack there in 10th, but um, the fact that they'll go to Adelaide and surely he'll be able to qualify near the front, that'll be a big part of the job already done if they can do that. Absolutely, and he's proven himself to be quite good at qualifying near the front this year because, of course, he picked up the 10 grand for the Armroll Pole Champion uh, season-long award for the most pole positions across the course of the season, which you picked up on before anyone else by the looks of things. Well, you risk uh, losing your job in the V8 sleuth business if uh, you're not on top of those uh, statty things. So, uh, yeah, it was it was just a bizarre scenario where obviously uh, Will Brown missing the shootout meant he could no longer beat Brody for that uh, award. So it defaults, uh, yeah, rather than getting a pole to win it, that was how it unfolded. 
Well, when it comes to the title chase, we might actually give the last word on the subject to Brody Kostecki himself. Here's what he had to say about the challenge ahead of him after the Sunday race. Uh, to Brody Barry, I mean, the title's in sight now. It's one round to go. You've got a decent buffer. It's pretty real now that, you know, you guys could, could win this thing. Yeah, I think, you know, most definitely. Um, it's been it's been like that all year. We've had, you know, speed all year. But, um, yeah, it's it, it's great that we've gone into, you know, that we're going to go into Adelaide with the same, you know, the same points gap that we went into Gold Coast with, um, you know, this place is pretty daunting. It's, you know, very high high risk to, um, you know, make lap time out of the cars and anything can happen off the start line and whatnot. So, but um, to be honest, Adelaide's not much different. Um, you know, we've, we've seen plenty of stuff, you know, ha- happen there and there's turn eight and, everything else going on so the race was pretty crazy last year with the marbles so yeah we'll just um yeah just focus on ourselves and you know um you know just just one foot in front of the other and you know one step at a time the curbs at the chicanes were always going to be a big focal point on the gold coast especially with the removal of the apex tire bundles at the beach chicane and the reliance on sensors to police the curb hops There were plenty of deleted laps in practice and qualifying and in the top 10 shootouts as well, and quite a few warnings and penalties handed out during the races. Probably the most significant incident surrounding them, though, came on the last lap of the weekend, where race winner David Reynolds shortcut the first chicane amid his tense battle with Kostecki. He had curb hops up his sleeve and there was no talk of a penalty coming his way. Steph, what was your take on the incident? I mean, he did shortcut the course at the end of the day. Yeah, this is a really hard one to be honest. And to start with, I don't know how the discussion around curb hops and entirely shortcutting a chicane have become one conversation because they are two totally different things and a penalty can be issued for leaving the track and gaining an advantage regardless of curb strikes. So if you run the lens of did David Reynolds leave the track and gain an advantage? Well, he set his fastest first sector of the entire race on that last lap when he cut the chicane. And it also basically took out Brody's biggest overtaking opportunity there at turn four. So you look at that and go, that that's uncomfortable. Like that doesn't feel right. But at the same time, like a post-race time penalty would have just been a terrible decision in that situation. Like you destroy the sport issuing penalties like that post-race when we've just had this big finish. So unfortunately, I think it just is what it is. It's just, for me, it's just all part of the compromise of racing on that circuit. What was your uh, what was your read? Well, I, I personally thought it was fair play largely because it wasn't, it wasn't as though it was premeditated or he decided to go in there on the last lap and go, well, the, I've got curb, struck, curb hops up my sleeve. Why don't I just pull off the ultimate curb hop and straight line the whole deal? Um, so he wasn't trying to game the system or anything like that. And he was genuinely trying to make the corner. He said he got aero loose under the brakes from Brody and elected to straight line the chicane rather than risk having a mega shunt that takes them both out and adds a very different spectacular conclusion to the race. But like, also, I can see how drivers could potentially try and exploit that as a precedent as, um, as we go forward. And it was interesting to hear Supercars Driving Standards Advisor Craig Baird talk about talk about it over the first episode of Race Control on the BH Sleuth podcast, where he joins Aaron Noonan to explain the rationale behind the key calls across the Supercars Race Weekend. And Baird mentioned that Barry Ryan from Erebus had a good idea, at least for the instances like this of a driver completely straight lining or shortcutting the first chicane, 
and it was to take a leaf out of MotoGP's playbook with what they call a long lap penalty. So now if you don't watch um if you don't watch MotoGP, basically there's a corner on every MotoGP circuit where around the outside of it there's a lane marked out that a rider has to go through to serve a penalty. Uh, they could put something like that down at the turn four hairpin, whereby if you do straight line the first chicane, you can effectively redress it by taking the long way around of the hairpin. Um, there's there's obviously kinks to work out in that. Uh, marbles filling up the long lap lane being the first one that comes to mind. But overall, I don't mind that as a concept uh, and as a potential solution that we don't already have. Yeah, it does raise a, a few questions about the track homologation and, and all that side of it. But if MotoGP can do it, then surely supercars could too. I mean, they've tried a lot of different things over the years. Like you remember mid-2000s, like if you cut the chicane, you had to come to a complete stop then and there. It was um, like that sounds really dangerous, but that was the rule. So like if that was in place now, David Reynolds clearly does not win that car race on Sunday. But – I think going back to where this conversation started with the actual curb hop system, I just hope that they can build bigger curbs and ditch that electronic stuff entirely. And again, there's complications with not wanting to create ramps that shoot cars into the crowd if they hit them at the wrong angle. But that current system, like as much as the officials have tried so hard to improve it and they try so hard to police what's going on, it's just, it's a stain on the event, unfortunately. It's just it's just an ugly system. I guess that's the thing. All, for everything that's been tried and everything that's been talked about over the years, as you said earlier, racing on a street circuits with these cars or just in general, it's, it's a big compromise. The, the ultimate solution is to just take the chicane away entirely, but then you've got the problem of cars arriving at that turn four hairpin at 270 kilometers an hour and not enough braking zone there. So you need something to slow them down. Is there a way of realigning the chicanes to make them tighter or slower? I, I don't know. Uh, the other big judicial talking point after the weekend was James Golding's flick spin after waking the tires at the first chicane late in the Sunday race. The Premier Camaro ended up parked backwards just on driver's left on the exit of the chicane. And he sat there for a bit and then flick spun it back the right way, but it put the car into the middle of the road and Scott Pye ended up sideswiping the concrete wall as he tried to avoid him. And Pye lost a top 10 finish as a result and he sounded absolutely apoplectic about Golding's move afterwards and the, the fact that there was no penalty for it. Uh, Beto also addressed this on the race control pod and here's part of what he had to say. I spoke to Will Brown about it. He was the first one on the scene. He saw the yellow. He said he clearly saw the yellow. He slowed to a point, but he didn't know where the accident was. So his option, he went straight through the chicane. He went straight through as a cut. Not a bad option because he thought initially the accident might have been sort of to the left as they went in. So he took that option. Scott went in, obviously at speed and came out on throttle, and that gap was diminishing. But that's what the yellow's for. That's for the safety of Golding and Pi at that point. If you want to listen to the full episode, go check it out on the V8 Sleuth podcast. So Beardo there was placing the onus on the drivers to obey the yellow flags, and he also said that per the rules, Golding wasn't rejoining the racetrack. He was already on it. 
So that's a bit different to going onto the grass or down an escape road. And he also made the point that Golding didn't have a lot of options where he was to get himself out of the way at that point. But look, for mine, yes, Golding tried with good intentions to get the car out of the way as quickly as possible. But at the end of the day, he'd made a mistake and crashed the car. And if the only penalty for that is having to wait ages for your race engineer to point out a gap in traffic, so be it. Again, this is an interesting one because I've got to say the initial optics of what we saw on the TV, like James Golding's move looked borderline reckless and it could have caused an enormous accident. But, you know, Craig Baird has been pretty firm with how he's ruled on it. And sure, respecting yellow flags is a very important part of this here, but I think your point is also very valid. Like it looked like there was a little bit of room for James to edge his way off the race line and wait. He he did also have that option. And it's an interesting precedent in terms of giving drivers carte blanche to drop a donut on a blind corner and, and hope for the best. Looking ahead to next year now, we took another step towards squaring away the 2024 Repco Supercars Championship grid at the weekend, with the Blanchard Racing Team confirming James Courtney and Aaron Love in its expanded two-car team. And while I've got most of the 24 seats fully confirmed now, Steph, there are a couple that we're still waiting on official confirmation for. Yeah, certainly that uh, Courtney-Love combination has been an open secret for a while, so there was no surprises there and there was more people talking off the back of that about what Todd Hazelwood is going to do next year and the early mail is he could slot into the Erebus co-drive alongside his mate Jack LeBrock in the nine car so we'll wait and see on that but in terms of the other full-time seats Tickford will soon confirm Cam Waters and Thomas Randall in their two-car lineup having scaled back from four which leaves BJR as the only one that hasn't announced once that's out. So that will be largely unchanged at BJR, but there was a lot of talk over the weekend that Jack Smith may be stepping back and that Zach Best is being lined up to replace him in that car. That would obviously be awesome for Zach if that happened to finally break his way in after being on the cusp for a while. And the official word from the team at the moment is that they're not planning a change, but um, yeah, it looks like there might be a little bit more to play out there yet. It would be fantastic to see Zach Best finally get his backside into a main game car full-time. I mean, he's been quite impressive in his wildcard starts, that pole, that incredible pole position at the Bend a couple of years ago, and he's he's done his waiting. He's done his waiting. Yeah, it really felt like um, at the end of last year he was ready to step up and he's had to do an extra season and, and bide his time. But, um, yeah, he's another young talent that uh, I think a lot of us would like to see in the main game. Let's take a look at the international scene now and the MotoGP World Championship battle looks set to go down to the wire. Jorge Martin trimmed his deficit to just 13 points after sweeping both the sprint race and the main at the Thailand Motorcycle Grand Prix. The latter was an absolute thriller, fighting off both Brad Binder and points leader Paco Bagnaia in the closing stages. Jack Miller just couldn't find a setup to work with the tyre casing that Michelin brought to Buriram and struggled all weekend finishing 10th in the sprint and 16th in the Grand Prix itself. Uh, NASCAR has its four title contenders locked in for its season-ending championship race after Ryan Blaney booked his spot by winning the penultimate race at Martinsville. He joins fellow round of eight race winners Kyle Larson and Christopher Bell, while William Byron pipped Denny Hamlin to the final transfer spot despite finishing a distant 13th. 
Kali Rovampera stitched up the WRC title with a round to go. The Toyota driver finished second to Hyundai's Tierra Neville on the Central European Rally, but it was enough to seal the 23-year-old second consecutive world title. And in Formula 1, Max Verstappen took his 16th win of the season at the Mexico City Grand Prix. That breaks his own record of the most wins in a season, which he set last year. He split the Ferraris off the start and then just disappeared up the road, and they only saw him again on a restart following a red flag caused by a nasty accident for Kevin Magnussen. Uh, Lewis Hamilton finished second from pole sitter Charles Leclerc, and we actually had three Aussies in action across an F1 weekend for the first time since 1977, I think. Uh, Jack Dewan took over Pierre Gasly's Alpine for FP1, joining regular race drivers Daniel Ricciardo and Oscar Piastri. Uh, Piastri ended up eighth after a disappointing race for McLaren, who'd been tipped to be among the front runners, while Ricardo worked the Aussie news tabloids into an absolute lather by qualifying fourth, and he ended up crossing the line in seventh. But Steph, more crucially, he appeared to outperform Sergio Perez, who kind of crumbled in front of his home crowd at Hermanos Rodriguez. Yeah, I don't think it's just the Aussie tabloids excited about all that. I think if you're a producer on Drive to Survive, you'd be doing cartwheels into the studio this week. It's it's just unbelievable. Like um, Sergio Perez has just performed one of the all-time capitulations from where he was in the early races this year to where he is now. And it's just, it's hard to see how it can go on into next year with Perez in that car with with how it's been lately. And obviously, yeah, Daniel has just played himself back into the picture beautifully with uh, the performance on the weekend. We talk about um, we talk about how much they manufacture drama for Drive to Survive, but this is genuine. Like, this is... It's all happening here. Like, it's, it's amazing to think that Perez... Got to wonder how much of it is... How much of it is driver? How much of it is his own feeling of discomfort within the team with this repeated pressure? Um, and how much of it is him just not getting along with the car? Because as we've seen in Formula One with Ricardo as the prime example at McLaren, if you're just not getting along with a car, it can make a, a quite good driver just suddenly look very average. It can, but he was uh, very briefly in the lead of that race when he crashed out. He had his nose just in front and it was just... Uh, a poor decision, unfortunately. Like you can see why he felt like he had to go for it, but um, yeah, three wide and being on the outside is probably not going to work out for you too often. So yeah, huge disappointment for the home crowd, but everyone's sort of waiting to see what Red Bull are going to do with their uh, all their drivers now. Right. It's motorsport news mailbag time, and Dean Anthony asks, I was thinking back to the Winfield Triple Challenge days and found myself imagining a Sydney night round where all cars qualify for a top 10 shootout by drag racing knockout style on the drag strip. It's still using a key point of a supercar driver's skill set, and I can't help thinking it would introduce a fresh take on the championship and may appeal to a wider audience. What are your thoughts? Uh... I like the lateral thinking, Dean. Like, I like the idea of thinking of different ways other than what we've done in the past, going from a top 10 shootout to a 15-car shootout to a full-field shootout, which turned out to be as as dull as you would probably think it might be. Um, Slight logistical headache with the drag strip now being separate from the main straight at Sydney Motorsport Park, and I'm not sure whether you can actually use the old one for that purpose. Um, But I do like the concept. Maybe it could work at Hidden Valley. What do you reckon, Steph? 
Well, I can already hear the Ford press release being typed up saying they have no chance in this straight line competition. So that had caused some headaches to start with. It is certainly a different idea, but um, I think too, like whenever teams do drag racing demos on actual drag strips with their supercars, the cars just look so slow because you're used to seeing actual drag cars on a quarter mile and supercars are just not very impressive in that environment. And with the amount of VHT that they put down, that traction compound in the lanes, when we were doing the Triple Eight car history book for V8 Sleuth, some of my cars were the FG Falcons, the or Hogsters, as I think I have to call them. Um, they took them to Willowbank Raceway for a series of demonstration runs, and I don't think I don't think they got a clean start until the final, the third and final one. They'd either grip up and then bog right down, or Either, whatever happened, they just wouldn't get off the line. So um would definitely be a test of engineer skill as well as driver skill, and I'm not sure teams would be that wrapped about replacing that many clutches. Do you remember from uh, the Triple Eight stuff what sort of times they were doing on the quarter mile? Well, not off the top of my head, but um, they definitely weren't doing the four-second runs that a top fuel dragster will be doing. So um, it could end up being a very long long bracket, bit of bracket racing to determine a top 10 shootout. Uh, Steph, it's time to whip out your imaginary checkbook because it's what caught your eye on my 105 time. What's getting your cash this week? Well, I've actually sorted one out for you here this week. Jim Richards. Oh, really? Yep. The 2003 Cura Cup winning Jim Richards Porsche is up for sale. And I felt like as you being the author of Jim's biography, this would just look great in your garage and I just I reckon we've got to see if the owner is happy to swap this for your Volkswagen Beetle because they're practically <laughs> the same car right uh, I mean I mean in, insofar as a Ford Falcon is the same thing as a Ford Mustang um, I'd, to be honest I don't think the owner of said Volkswagen Beetle would be too keen on the swap but we can always ask um, for mine, I grew up loving Mazda RX-7 sports sedans, particularly the yellow Toledo Tools car raced by Keith Carling and the ones raced by Dick Ward out of WA. Well, one just like Dick Ward's has popped up on my 105. It was originally built out of one of Ward's Go Gear kits by Ivan Mikak in the 90s and most recently won the Tassie State Championship in 2021. It was a top 10 car of the Precision National Sports Sedan Series round at Winton earlier this year, $75,000 plus freight across Bass Strait from Devonport. I reckon that'd be a bit of fun. I reckon there's been a few sports sedans uh, bought on this My 105 section over the last uh, year or so. <laughs> yes. Um, don't forget, you can visit my105.com for those two machines and plenty more cars, bikes, carts, trailers, transporters, parts, and accessories. Before we go, let's look to the weekend ahead. On Australian soil, the big event on this weekend is the Shannon Speed Series round at Sydney Motorsport Park, where a solid contingent of nine international TCR Series stars will join the Aussies for the first leg of the TCR World Tour. Formula One completes its triple header with the Grand Prix of Sao Paulo at Interlagos, while NASCAR has its grand finale with the championship races for the Truck Series, Xfinity Series, and of course the Cup Series, and they're all happening at the One Mile Phoenix International Raceway this weekend, Steph, I've gotten right back into NASCAR this year, funnily enough. Um, so I'm actually pretty keen for the Cup Series finale on Monday morning. What are you looking forward to most this weekend? Well, I reckon that uh, NASCAR will be a bit early in the morning for uh, for my taste. And I'm actually looking forward to TCR 
this weekend, which is something I've not said for a while, but a 25-car field there at Sydney Motorsport Park is pretty tasty. And, yeah, I'm just keen to see how the locals fare against uh, this group of internationals. I'm excited to see Ted York race on Australian soil. If for no other reason than when Volvo was originally um, flagged as entering supercars back in the back a decade or so ago now, um, and there was all the speculation as to who would join Scott McLaughlin at Gary Rogers Motorsport. All of a sudden, Ted Bjork started liking an awful lot of supercars-related posts on the on the Speed TV Instagram account. Um, I don't know whether he was ever possibly in the running. I presume not, but I'm excited to see him finally down under anyway. Well, if his dream was to race at City Motorsport Park, then he's going to finally achieve it this weekend. <laughs> and on that note, that's it for this week. So for Stefan Bartholomeus, I'm Will Dale, and we'll be back next Tuesday with a fresh episode of Castrol Motorsport News. Hey, it's Chaz Mostert here, and yes, I'm inside your speaker. I'm in here because I have a special message for you from Clayton in Melbourne. If you're a club, state, or national racer on the circuit or on the dirt in Speedway or rallying, you can now tap into the know-how of Walkinshaw Racing Services, and you don't need a supercar to get in the door. The same expertise that's won multiple Bathurst 1000s and V8 Supercar Championships is now available for you to call upon. From bonnet to bumper, WRS can help you with engines, design, paint, machining, fabrication, and so much more for all sorts of makes, models, and categories. Have a chat with Walkinshaw Racing Services and tell them what matters to you. Call now on 1300 WRacing or email services at walkinshawracing.com.au.